Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. Before this episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast, I want to tell you about the greatest season that was presents 99, the semifinal. It's an oral history combining all of the key moments and all of the key people from the great team of the greatest season that was presents. It's available now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's an iconic match, and it's captured brilliantly by Adam Collins, Shannon Gill, and Dan Bredig. Check it out. Let us know what you think. The Final Word Cricket Podcast is part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. If you like it and you're listening to this, chances are you do. Tell your friends about it. Rate it and review it. It really does help. That's enough from me. Now here's Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall, just for what I did well. This is The Final Word, once again, with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We've got a lot to get through on the show today, a lot of machinations in the political world of cricket, the underworld, the overworld, the midworld. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You'll have to go through it. We have a a lot of number diving to do in the back half of the show. We mentioned online during the week that we've just had a chat to William McGuinness last night as per when we're recording now in in the real time of the world. We're going to hold back that interview by a fortnight because it's an hour and 20 of beautiful brilliance and there's so much news to get through on today's show that we didn't want to pile it all together and give you a three-hour show as much as maybe a few of you would like that so we'd like that to stand on its own and we've we've already lined up some some stuff that adam's pre-prepared with mark nicholas to go ahead next week um, which will be in context because mark nicholas does bob up in the william mcginnis stories from time to time yeah that's right jeff hello everyone uh yeah we, we spoke to mark for two and a half hours for calling the shots uh, last week which you may have seen on the feed on Friday and Saturday, of which we used about, I don't know, eight or ten minutes, which is the nature of the show. You can't use much of it, given how many voices we have in there and old clips and and telling a story with Daniel and myself. So what we thought we would do instead is um, turn two and a half hours into, say, 90 minutes of the best stuff we did with Mark and, and roll that out from his life in commentary and his reflections on the craft. And it's really interesting stuff when you get someone on air like Mark who just adores cricket commentary like he can recite stuff from the 60s and and we went back and (laughs) checked some of it against the tape and he's almost word perfect he's remarkable he clearly loves it so i think that that'll come through and we'll 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 push that together and uh, and push it out next week now in some ways this show for us is an escape from the world but it also can't ignore the world around us we're recording this at a time when the united states is on fire uh, the protesters who are being brutalised by police across the country, the the riots that have sparked up by whichever uh, agents have joined in. It's 
an extraordinary scene that we're seeing in that country falling apart. There are the obvious parallels in our country in Australia with the way that Indigenous Australians have been treated by police. Uh, no Australian police officer has ever been charged for an Indigenous death in custody in the history of our country. It's all going on around us and I know, Adam, you've been keeping a close eye on it as well and there's there's a limited use to what a couple of white guys on a podcast can say about it that's any use but we wanted to at least put it on the record that we are aware of this and that, you know, obviously we're standing with the people who are affected because the world of cricket is entirely driven by people of colour. That's that's the, where the joy of the game comes from. That's where so much of the game that we love uh, comes from is the people and the characters all through Africa, through the Caribbean, through Asia who've made this game what it is and we obviously stand with them in terms of the discrimination, the racism that they've experienced. We we don't know what it's like. We can't stand with them in terms of the experience, but we, we want to make sure that anybody listening who is affected knows that we're with you. We feel solidarity for you in the struggle that you're going through and we wish strength to you. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. We do. I think that a strong thread out of the commentary this week has been that it's easy for white people just to turn the other way. We can retweet something, we can hashtag something, we can um, be ashamed by it from tens of thousands of kilometres away and, and be dismayed at what's going on in different parts of the world. But the responsibility, I think, lies on the shoulders of those who are witnessing these injustices to also use the voice that they do have and, and the platforms they have to to express themselves. So you see this happen from time to time where sports people will put their head above the parapet and they'll be told to stick to sport. You, know, you see it a lot on Twitter and, mm. and Facebook, but especially Twitter, I think, uh, where those involved in, in sport are told that that's the, that the extent of their remit and they shouldn't dare comment on the world around them. Well, I think this week that, that has changed a bit where members of the black community in America are, are embracing, um, not just embracing, but encouraging white people to stand with them but also use their voice uh, and use their megaphone if they've got one. It's been harrowing to watch the pictures coming in from America uh, and other parts of the world but specifically America um, in the last few days. It's not the first time this has happened and regrettably it probably won't be the last and it feels like it's going to be a very long year in that country and yes Australia can't just sort of look the other way either. We have a, a shameful record when it comes to um, police brutality uh, of Indigenous prisoners. Uh, there's been some horrific uh, horrific scenes shown in the last few years even so it's not just a historical thing from the Royal Commission back in the early 90s this, this runs up to almost the modern day um, and of course uh, over in the UK where I live there's been some well documented riots 10 years ago which in part fed off that so yes um, there's a lot of members of the of the, of the black and uh, BAME as we say over here community who are deeply involved in cricket and uh, who would be watching this no doubt and be just horrified as well uh, and yes we, we, are, we are united with them uh, through this and our solidarity uh, with, with everyone who is feeling like they're being oppressed at the moment um, not feeling like they're being who are being oppressed uh, in, in different parts of the world uh, and yeah we're just a, a podcast from you know two white guys talking on a podcast but hey you know um, it, it, it doesn't hurt to add our voice to the chorus of those that are out there uh, who are just disgusted by what's going on and I won't labour the point but a couple of little points if you find yourself chatting to someone who's using what ends up being a, a bad faith argument the thing that 
people keep saying they're trotting out this line of all lives matter in response to black lives matter that's not an expansion on the point that's a regression on the point the original point of black lives matter is that all lives do matter but black lives are treated like they matter less like they're less Mm. valuable so uh, anybody who thinks they're using that as a snappy comeback it's it's not a comeback it's the original point of the statement and the kind of statements that say everybody should be using peaceful protest they've been trying to use peaceful protest for decades upon decades martin luther king advocated peaceful protest and got murdered for doing it so if you want to throw in a comment on it try to be a little bit more aware of the history of the struggle that you're talking about but uh, we'll leave it there and a little relevant point i suppose a relevant link is that potentially zimbabwe will be coming to to tour australia later this year and obviously some wonderful black cricketers who've played for zimbabwe over the years probably fewer than than there should have been um, given the way that social structure of that country worked out but um, zimbabwe's been a a fairly hot mess for a fairly long time but there's something encouraging about maybe we'll see whether the tour goes ahead we don't really know but in theory Zimbabwe will be coming to Australia for a few one days for the first time since 2004 Adam. Yeah baby steps right so I was in Zimbabwe a couple of years ago and that was the strong message from the administrators I talked to when I was over there it was just before the presidential election so that it was a, a time of flux and a time of looking forward uh, and they, they were sort of making the point then that, yes, they, they were still crippled by debt. Yes, there was uh, enormous volatility with their playing group compared to their administrators and, and, and everything else that goes hand in hand with a country that's had 15 years of this, longer really, but 15 years where they've been um, periodically, periodically excluded from the international game as well. But the fact that they're coming to Australia, I mean, we, we've made a big point of Bangladesh and Zimbabwe uh, not getting invited to come to Australia. Um, in Zimbabwe's case, their test matches were in 2003, one day as in a tri-series in 2004. Bangladesh um, played test in 2003 and have had, I think now we're up to four tours cancelled thereafter for different reasons. So, um, yes, that, the, the two, until Ireland and Afghanistan came in, they were the, the, the most recent two uh, members of the big boys club, if you like, and just hadn't had that opportunity to play on the big stage in Australia. So it's great that Zimbabwe's tour is being honoured, of course, subject to what might happen as far as coronavirus between now and, and the middle of August. But yes, the top end idea, Jeff, the proposition is something that we haven't seen enough of. We, we've seen a lot of A tours in, in the middle of the winter, often India and, and South Africa have have ventured out to Australia to play in those. I know, Jeff, you, you actually covered one of those back in 2014. And the climate's right. There's no reason you can't do it. Uh, so um, there's no reason we can't expand the Australian footprint with cricket if we need to, uh, as and when. And this seems like a good opportunity to to get the ball rolling on that again. And if, if this goes well, and let's hope it does, if it goes well, then hopefully this can pave the way for future Zimbabwe tours of Australia. And, and hopefully before too long, they can get back for test matches as well. Well, they play a whole season up there in Darwin at that time of year, and that's when it's, you know, you're outside the wet season, it's not quite as hot, and that's the best time of the year to play cricket. So it worked for the the Northern Territory Strike League, of course, is where Mm. David Warner and Cameron Bancroft played their first official cricket match of any sort after Cape Town. Um, It made a a gradual re-entry there in a sort of mixed T20 and 50-over league, Uh, so the possibility is up there they obviously don't get a lot of top quality cricket there are some NT products who've moved away in order to make the next step like Jay Weatherald and Darcy Short so there's a, a community to cultivate there's um, there are, are grassroots that could be developed up there that would be assisted by having some 
quality cricket on a more regular basis than once every 15 years or so. It's, it's like the, the, the particular alignment of the stars. Uh, yeah, Saturn and Jupiter are coming up together at the moment, rising in the east um, one after the other. So maybe it's only then that we're allowed to play cricket in, in Darwin. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, longer term perhaps, but why have we never really talked about the Northern Territory having a first-class team? Canberra had in the Mercantile Mutual Cup, the Comets, the ACT Comets for, mm-hmm. well, the Canberra Comets based in the ACT, I should say, um, for a couple of years in the late 90s. But, I mean, there is the ability to to, uh, to use that. We, we've seen uh, Alice Springs used as a, as a Sheffield Shield final venue, indeed, for Victoria. God, we're going on a few years ago now. But, yeah, the, the point is really that not enough top flight cricket's played there. Um, there is a climate that allows for it in the months that the southern states don't. So, hey, let's let's uh, let's get resourceful, especially when the schedule's so crammed. Now, of course, they're, you know, the Australian players have commitments around the world and the, the climate has changed as far as uh, domestic franchise cricket, even in the last three or four years with a number of leagues bobbing up. But this is an opportunity, I think, for Australian administrators to get a bit more creative about their scheduling and, and not just have sort of this one-off uh, Zimbabwe series, but look at the way that Ireland, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Zimbabwe, the four countries who Australia will be reticent to host for, for financial reasons, well, it might be a bit different when you play it up there. So, yeah, fingers crossed it's the start of something. And, it, yeah, it might be that bit more financially viable if you yeah. can... You've got the cost of running a, a smaller, more modest sort of ground. You've got a better chance of getting a crowd in, perhaps, for um, those lower profile games where there there aren't a lot of other juicy fixtures in the same summer to have people deciding they'd rather go to one of those instead. I've got a little little, uh, little factoid for you here, Jeff. In, in 2000 and... Oh, let me get this right. 2003, uh, Bangladesh played a couple of test matches in the top end and in 2004, Sri Lanka did. Now, I reckon it was 2004. In 2004, when Sri Lanka played um, their warm-up game against the Northern Territory's Chief Minister's Eleven, something mm-hmm. like that, to prepare for their test match. The opening and Mark bowler, Latham was there wearing a filthy polo <laughs> and a pair of oversized shorts <laughs> at the Northern Territory Chief Minister's <laughs> Eleven 15 he, years he, ago. He was, he was opposition leader at the time, funnily enough, God. Um, uh, the, the opening bowler for the Northern Territory in that game was none other than North Melbourne sensation from 1993, Adrian McAdam. Really? Bowled left arm heat. Wow. So 11 years after that fateful season in 93 when he when he went bananas and exploded onto the AFL scene, he, he was uh, still getting around as a cricketer. So, you know, there's a little one for you. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad you decided to fill me in. Now it's time for a very special moment in the show. Sachin. 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 It is indeed happy birthday, Sachin. Uh, Time to check who the little master has been wishing happy birthday to this week. And I can tell you it's a very select cast. Just one birthday wish in the last, I think, 14 days. I don't think we've done this segment for a couple of weeks, Adam. Mm. Uh, Although a big, a big target, big in India, big anywhere. Ravi Shastri. Happy birthday, Ravi, said Sachin. Wishing you a great life ahead. Have fond memories of playing with you for India and Mumbai. Of course, we can't think of Ravi Shastri without thinking of that truly surreal performance art press conference he gave after India won the series in Sydney, where he he did his one-man show that he'd been working on for the Melbourne Fringe Festival, (laughs) coming out with the lead, lead. 
it's got something in it. You can fire shots from the northern hemisphere, but they'll blow away in the wind like a tracer bullet. Like, what? So it's like like leaves of grass. What I think we dedicated about 20 minutes of, uh, of final word to it with uh, Barat after that test. You can go back <laughs> yeah. in the archives and hear more of that preposterous uh, Ravi Shastri press conference. <laughs> I was um, talking to Ravi with Harsha last week, uh, again, in the context of calling the shots, and Ravi was part of the original commentary team for ESPN when they first sort of kicked off in, in the mid-90s, and Harsha yep. was part of that as well. And the, the branding for it was A Few Good Men, and they used to walk down the <laughs> beach like, you know, slow motion <laughs> as they did their promos. As the few, I think it was um, Harsha, Ravi, I think Jeff Boycott was part of that team as well. Okay. Uh, uh, Gavaska, <laughs> Ralph Deller, I think was another one, and a couple of other English commentators. But anyway, that was something I learned about Ravi last week. He was a member of The Few Good Men. But yeah, what a career he's had. He's bounced around so much from, of course, being a player, tore Shane Warner apart uh, on debut at the SCG in early 92 to having this illustrious media career, coaching the Indian team back in the media. Like He's bounced around mm. so much. He, he's such a big figure. So no surprise uh, there that, that he gets a little happy birthday from Sachin. Well, I'm particularly interested that Sachin, though, wishes him a great life ahead. Normally, it's it's a good year if you're wishing someone a, a happy birthday. This is like Sachin's... He's putting Ravi onto the, the boats at the end of Lord of the Rings where they send the elves off towards the distant island of whatever it's called to, to go and meet their ancestors and, and they sail off never to return, you know, wishing you a great life ahead, Ravi. Never going to speak to you again, so, <laughs> so we'll see. But interestingly, Sachin chose not to wish happy birthday yet to um, Stephen Peter Devereux Smith. There's still time, still a few hours left of SPD's birthday, but um, nothing yet, as yet, yeah. from Sachin. Yes, SPD Smith birthday today, 2nd of June. He's what, Jeff? Is he 31 today? Would that be about right? He is 31 years and zero days today, but I found that when I type Steve Smith into my browser now, the first entry is um, his stats from the Global T20 tournament in Canada in <laughs> 2018, which uh, which gives you an indication of how niche I've been going. <laughs> One other person who did not get a birthday wish today, I know we said we'd stop talking about this, but we can't help it. Shane Warne decided today to specifically send out a, a birthday tweet, a message, a happy birthday to Mark War, very nice. Uh, do you know who shares a birthday with Mark War <laughs> that anybody could have figured out? Who didn't get a birthday message today? Stephen War. Oh dear! Happy birthday, one of the pair of twins. How do they? What, what medium did did Shane use to wish Mark all at, the best? At least Twitter. I don't know if he doubled up on Instagram. Um, right. I'm, I'm less gram heavy than you or. Possibly Shane, depending on the night. But oh, he's Graham heavy. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he loves the... <laughs> no, not, not, not. <laughs> he, uh, if, if it's going anywhere, it's going on Instagram for, for warning. So, okay. Well, that does kick it along a bit. I'm sure there'll be headlines about that tomorrow. Someone will write that story. <laughs> Uh, headlines during the week, this week, there's been a fair bit about the ICC and this mm. is interesting. There was supposed to be an ICC meeting. They, they basically met and then decided they wouldn't discuss anything until they meet again in July, I think, is the next meeting coming June up. June the 10th. It's not, it's not far away. It's only a couple of weeks, but significant right. that, that pause considering the weighty topics they were meant to deal with there. I mean, not least the, 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 the T20 World Cup, which is scheduled for October, and that's all been put on hold because of this this alleged breach, Jeff. Yes. Well, I mean, not not alleged. They're, they're very cross about leaks of correspondence. So 
essentially, you know, this was broken by Nagraj on the Crick Info website during the week, that the ICC legal staff, the general counsel, Jonathan Hall, has been threatening that they might take away the 2021 World Cup, the T20 World Cup in 2021, if you don't want to get confused, which is supposed to happen in India. Australia's tournament might be pushed back into that spot instead, so we don't even know if it's going to go ahead in that year. But uh, it might be taken away from India over tax issues. Now, the BCCI is supposed to obtain a thing called a tax exemption from the federal government in India, which... Last time in 2016 when they held the tournament, they lost about 30 million US dollars in tax because they didn't get an exemption. That got billed to the BCCI. It got taken out of their share of the ICC revenue. And the BCCI is still cracking the shits about that and appealing that decision and taking it to a dispute resolution board or something and trying to get that money back. But they also haven't got a tax exemption for the next tournament they're supposed to hold in 18 months. They've had several deadlines for this that have gone past they haven't met them, they're still asking for more time and they've been denied that time by the ICC uh, and its general counsel. All of that was happening behind closed doors but then the correspondence between Jonathan Hall, the general counsel and the BCCI has been leaked somehow or other to the media to expose the fact that this tension's going on and that's what they're not happy about. The ICC take this stuff really seriously. So back in 2006 or maybe 2007, I think it was 2006, Australia was bidding for the 2011 World Cup. Uh, And in that bid, uh, which included the federal government, they received a tax exemption for the 2011 tournament. Now, of course, as we know, Australia didn't get 2011. They were given 2015 instead. But the original letter, the original correspondence, which was um, exchanged with the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Howard, was about the 2011 tournament. So press fast forward to about 2013, 13, it must have been, early 2013, there wasn't a tax exemption for 2015. They hadn't yet received it yet because it didn't Mm. relate to the 2015 tournament. So very quickly that needed to be sought uh, from the federal government and I think that was in the 2013 budget. So, the and again, it was. I'm not saying the ICC were threatening to take away the 2015 tournament, but there was a real emphasis on we must have this in place before we have a tournament in your country. So, yeah, there's, I'm not surprised that um, if the BCCI, what are we, if that tournament was to go ahead as scheduled in October 2021, that's, what, 14, 15 months, months away. away. 18 months away, sorry. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of get why they're, they're trying to heavy the, the BCCI to get this done. Well, it's also that there's a general practice in the BCCI to leave things to the last minute administratively. The the interesting part and the, the quite amusing part really in, in a fairly darkly humorous way is that the BCCI have claimed that the coronavirus pandemic is the thing that is stopping them getting this exemption sorted out. And so they've applied for an extension. The ICC said, we'd like to see the correspondence that you have trying to get this um, tax exemption from the government. So the last letter that the BCCI sent was in August last year, August 2019. Between then and April this year, they had no further correspondence. Then in April this year, they applied for an extension saying that the COVID lockdown in India Mm. has meant that we can't get this lined up in time. And the ICC have rejected that um, very firmly. The email from Jonathan Hall said, the BCCI has clearly had many years to arrange the tax solution, which is why the agreement asks for it to be provided no later than 18 months prior. So that 
has left them in the situation where under the contracts, the way they stand, the ICC could take that tournament away. Obviously, that would kick off a massive conflict within cricket and everybody needs India to be nice to them financially at the moment more than ever. So I doubt that's going to happen. But it's it's some pretty high-level tension that's going on at the moment. Yeah, and that, and that was why there was the blow-up at the meeting. So we, we received this statement, which... You know, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what would happen with the October 2020 tournament, the working assumption that it would be delayed until February, as we talked about on the final word last week, or, or October, and that, that seems more likely now based on subsequent um, comments from, from Kevin Robertson from Earl Eddings, the chairman of Cricket Australia. But we're all sitting around waiting to see what happens, and then basically the, 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 the statement said nothing's happened. They were investigating mm. the leaks, the, the breach um, that, that saw those uh, co- that bit of correspondence end up with the Times of India as well about uh, the um, the movement of the tournament potentially away from this year uh, and then uh, as a result of that they said they're going to have an internal investigation with their ethics officer of the ICC and the global experts would be involved and so instead of actually dealing with the, the items on the agenda they made a pretty big point of pushing them all off the agenda just to deal with this so um, some very unhappy people at ICC HQ. Well, this is the curious part where there's been, there's all of this angst about the leaked correspondence between India and the ICC, but then correspondence between Australia and the ICC was also leaked a bit later where Earl Eddings, the the chairman of CA, had put forward this preference saying that if the T20 World Cup couldn't be held this year, Australia would prefer it to be pushed back to next year. That was leaked out as well. So whether that helps India's cause is an interesting question because if India's version of that tournament, which is supposed to be a year later, if that were pushed back to 2022, that might actually help them in terms of giving them more time to get their tax issues sorted out, although it does mean it would run dangerously close to the 50-over World Cup the year after that. So uh, cricket is a sport rich in World Cups at the moment. We've got about six World Cups in the next probably 18 months, um, the way things are going at the moment. Yeah, and I I think that's where most cricket fans have their attention at the moment. It's that when they're looking at the ICC, they're looking for this to be resolved. They're not so much concerned about what bit of correspondence ended up in what newspaper or what website. Mm. They're like, no, 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 just, just tell us what's going on. Let us get on with it. And if it were to be the case that there'd be a men's tournament for T20s in 2021, then 2022, and a 50-over World Cup in 2023, well, look, yes, it's not perfect, but as we said last week, kind of none of this is perfect, so just get on with it. Like, I don't think, just tap it into you know, my veins. Yeah. Save a World Cup every month. Make it happen. <laughs> if it's going to be that way anyway, if we're going to eventually end up with these being squeezed in, well, okay, mm. like just make the call. It's the uncertainty that, that's going to start yeah. eating away at people and, and diminishing this goodwill. Can I ask you a question? As, as someone who's had experience working in government, why don't they just pay some fucking tax? Like, why, why, did, why should they have a right, every country they go to, to say we deserve to get a tax exemption for the beneficent joy of bringing our tournament to your country? And there's always the argument that, oh, we bring economic benefit and there are knock-on benefits for the country. But still, you're still making, the ICC is still making money. The sport's still making money out of holding the event in the country. Why shouldn't they pay for the infrastructure that they use and the audience that they get from the country that they visit, like any business does, and they like to think of themselves as a business or like any business should rather than any business does rather than saying we create economic knock-on prosperity why not say we actually make money from this so therefore we should pay for it 
I think you've summed up the, the counterpoint right there. It's that, as I recall, and it's been a long time since I dealt with this, but it's that um, the economic activity that's brought into the country, that the ICC could give the World Cup to another country. It doesn't have to be in, mm. in one place or another. They have the option to move it, and they're, they're granting um, the host the opportunity to, to have this economic windfall, which they do. I mean, and obviously um, yeah, we've seen in... But they don't numbers. do it out of the goodness of their own heart. They no, make no, no, cash no, 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 out no, no, of it. No, they not, take I'm away not, a big, big briefcase full of money at the end. Hey, I'm not diminishing your argument. Don't, you know, you're not, not going to hear me um, arguing the counterpoint. But um, I think that is where, that's where the fault line is, the idea of the ICC. Because say, well, okay, then if you don't throw in this sweetener, then we could take it elsewhere. We could take the carnival to another part of the cricketing universe and, and then you can do without and you don't get the, the knock-on benefits. And, yeah, that, that extends to, to the host country's board. We saw with Cricket Australia the, the rivers of gold after the 2015 Men's World Cup as well. So, um, yes, I think it's kind of just one of those things that's expected. Uh, and governments have been happy to play ball historically, so there's a bit of a precedent at play there. Um, I don't know what arrangements were struck with uh, the UK government last year, but I'm, I'm going to assume that it was the same as Australia in 2015 and, and what they're seeking from India now for 2021 or 2022. We should also note that every week we name the CBUS Super Performer of the Week, and I think this week it could go to a journalist rather than a player. I think it could go to our colleague from Crick Info, Nagraj Golapudi, who got the scoop, who got the emails between the, the BCCI and the ICC. Who knows how? Who knows what he had to do? We'll never ask. He'll never tell. But uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty spicy story to pick up. Well, this is it. Sometimes uh, uh, the reporting of a big story will affect the course of history. So it's not just about reporting what's happening, but just the very fact that it's out there will change the, the, the story in a way. And that's kind of happened here. If not for Nagraj's intervention, then the ICC probably would have made a number of decisions on on their board meeting last week, but instead they've been deferred and instead um, a light has been shone on their internal processes, which is only can only be a good thing in terms of, you know, holding people in power to account and, and so on, which is obviously a big part of journalism. So well played, Nagraj, for getting hold of that uh, communication and and, uh, and revealing it to the world. If you observe something, you alter it. As physics has taught us, the act of bouncing a photon of light off an elementary particle to observe it changes its very course. Uh, <laughs> much like Siba Super changed the course of over $50 billion of members' money and their average return over the last 35 years is 9.23%. Obviously, past performance uh, does not dictate future performance and you should get a PDS to work out if it's right for you at cbussuper.com.au This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Let's take a quick breather and then we're going to look at the Australian schedule that's been released for the summer. Richie Benno Day, England's squad of 933 cricketers that they've released and a cricket playing doctors, a bit of nerd pledge. There's plenty coming up on the show. Jeff, before we move to the second segment of the show, a few words for our great mates at futuretalent.com.au, Future Talent Sports Cards. Uh, through the final word, they've been big supporters of what we've done over the last six months or so, and we're trying to provide them, Jeff, some support in return. Uh, they're running a fantastic competition right now, which is, I think, perfect for local clubs. Obviously, clubs have been battered, community cricket clubs, sports clubs around the world uh, in the last few months and, and here's an opportunity um, to get something back and future talent are playing a role. That's what they do. So 
making sports cards for the club that you play for or that you're involved in administrating for is a really nice way to get people connected with the club, to get your players feeling like they're part of something bigger. They can get their picture on a card, get their stats and their name on the back and uh, you can even mock up the old Stimmerol packs with the the foil wrapping if you want to do it that way or give them a a snack along with it and make make them feel like they're part of something bigger. And, And what Future Talent are doing at the moment is they've got a competition going to win 300 bucks worth of their sports cards so you can uh, get a look at them you can try them out without having to invest the money that maybe your club doesn't have at the moment Uh, you can go to their website which is futuretalent.com.au and then pop in a forward slash and the word competition you'll find the competition page enter your details and you can win there and whether you win it or whether you don't you can get the mock-ups of your card as a pdf and you can put those online and at least have a look at how they might work and decide whether that's something that you want to have for your club or your team. Yeah, I think that's a really important point here is that it's almost like a try before you buy by going there at the moment, futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition. You can see what Future Talent do and there's greater evidence of that through the cards they made for Jeff and I last year and this is part of the deal. Uh, listeners to The Final Word can get um, some of the very limited edition run of cards from The Final Word, one of Jeff and one of me and we are going to be making up a, a, a batch of cards for all of our guests. We've just been working through getting permission from each of them um, over the last few years but that's, uh, that's going to be part of our offering later in the year but we've said it before this is a great way to engage your membership at a time when they've been doing other things uh, I, I was uh, seeing my old club Endeavour Hills Cricket Club in Melbourne today they've they've appointed a new captain so the first 11 Chris Pereira who I played with as a kid and played under as, as the captain in the ones some years later he's there's this beautiful photo of him in the paper this week beautiful photo of him in full stride, glorious bowling action. And he put in the comments, someone should make a, a sports card of that, to which I replied, there's someone that does that, futuretalent.com.au. And I'm going to tell my friends at Endeavour Hills they should get involved in this competition because I'll tell you what, I've got any number of trophies from that club uh, through my time as a player, uh, you know, as a kid growing up through the juniors. Those little participation trophies you get, all they do is gather dust, all they do is end up in landfill, they're junk. Whereas if I had received a sports card from the under-12s or under-14s or whatever, had that existed then, Mm. I guarantee that I would still have it. It would still have serious meaning to me as an adult. And this is the thing, you you can develop that connection over a long period of time by having the face and the stats and the team. It's a really beautiful thing. They're wonderfully made. They've made over 200,000 cards in their 10 years in operation. They've got five-star reviews from Google, from Facebook. People love working with Heath and Emmanuel because they're fantastic human beings. I've known Heath since I was four years old. He's one of my oldest friends and um, he's one of the the best people I've ever known. So, you know, you're dealing with that personal touch as well. 15% discount if you just want to jump on and buy them. futuretalent.com.au at the price bar. Put in final word cricket. If you just want to get involved and skip the competition and get straight to business, well, from being part of our show, they'll bring you into their family with a 15% discount. And you deserve it if you've played cricket like that for a long time. We, we spoke to Willie McGuinness about playing fourths in you know, in the subbies, in, in the suburbs and struggling to get 11 together for a, a weekend game. And if you've done that, if, you're, if you know people who've done that for a long time, give them a little boost. You, you don't need to be in the team or at the club. Just put them on a card, slip it under their pillow, tell them the card fairy left it and you'll, you'll probably make their week. So futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition. They've supported us. Now it's time to, to back them in and support them and support career clubs around the country. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word.
This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Australian summer schedule came out this week, Adam, at least in theory. Cricket Australia said, here is where we plan to play games if everything works out, if everything goes well. The T20 World Cup is still in there. They're still claiming that's going to happen, even though we know that's very unlikely to happen at this stage, given it would make such a loss if they ran it without crowds, not to mention the logistical trouble of trying to get 16 teams into Australia through quarantine and then playing safely in front of empty grounds. So uh, that's the peculiar one at the moment, but I suppose uh, admitting things ahead of time isn't always a strong point. Yeah, there's a lot here, isn't there? It was a, it was a bumper schedule. Uh, it was so impressive in terms of the way it was put out. I've booked all my flights for Australia for the summer on the working assumption this all goes ahead, so fingers crossed. Um, mm. But no, the the, um, the World T20 surely won't happen. We, we talked in the previous segment about Earl Eddings' letter. Kevin Roberts added to that in his um, public comments this week saying it would be very risky having it now, um, not just from a security perspective, but yeah, you mentioned the revenue. They want to push it back a year. So... The fact that India are in the schedule at the moment to play T20s, as are the West Indies in October, you can almost put a line through those two series, I think. Why would, especially India, why would they come out for a series that's potentially clashing with the IPL for two weeks of quarantine for three T20 internationals? You can almost ignore that. Um, If the IPL goes ahead, Jeff, I note that Stephen Smith is speaking today uh, on his birthday, um, on his first training run back. He hasn't been playing any Stephen Smith on his birthday. On his birthday. He's done a press conference on his birthday. (laughs) First time he's picked up a bat, he was saying, apparently. Um, Anyway, so Smith was... Yeah, well, that's how the whole coronavirus thing started. Someone picked up a bat. Be careful. Indeed. Very nice. Uh, He was sort of saying that, uh, and I think Pat Cummins alluded to this as well during the week, that, uh, you know, it's not that the IPL will come first, and it never will, but they're inclined to play in the IPL. If if that's what the option is in October, that's what their preference will be. And why wouldn't it be their preference? If you're Pat Cummins and the preference was or the choice was 3.5 million US dollars to play the IPL or the match fees that you're going to get for three T20 games for Australia, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's fair enough to say what comes first. So, so let's work on the assumption that gets dealt with. And the IPL's in October and we get to November when the serious stuff starts, if you like, for Australia. Yeah. And Jeff, it was, it was great to see uh, in the schedule uh, that the Afghanistan test is going ahead. We, we weren't sure uh, whether it would or wouldn't. There were there was some stories floating around that Australia were trying to get India over five, which would have meant that Afghanistan missed out in their one-off test match. But um, they are going to be in Perth to start the summer. Uh, and better still, from my perspective, as I bloody love the place, we're going back to the whacker. They've decided uh. to play uh, the, the, the first test of the summer at the smaller Wacker, um, rather than at the massive Optus Stadium. I suppose that, that makes sense from a, an optics perspective, given they won't anticipate big crowds there. Remember that when they did start moving the bigger games to Optus Stadium, the new casino stadium over there at Burswood, the, 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 the announcement um, did include the caveat that smaller test matches, quote-unquote, would be still played at the Wacker. So I suppose that that's proof that they're going to go ahead with that. So um, we're going to be um, back uh, at the old ground in November for that test match. Over five days, Jeff, not four days as well so whether it goes that long that's neither here nor there but they have had that time carved out and, and I think that's a great thing because the easy thing from CA to do would have been to have jettisoned that and to have just moved on to the India stuff but I think it's great that they're starting with Afghanistan It's a weird one my understanding of the contracts were that at one test per season had to be played at the new Optus Stadium so I'm not sure how they've managed to work it to have it at the Wacker but yeah back we go um, at least <laughs> 
At least we're not all outside this time, but it, it's the the cruelest place in the world to put a spectator. Like, just absolutely unfair. So I suppose they're banking on the fact that no one can turn up to, to watch the game, so it may as well be there. So this is a curious thing, and maybe you've got a perspective on this. What is the point of lining up different cities to host the test matches when no one will be able to go to the games, most likely? Where's the value in trucking everybody around the country? Uh- I think the current advice is that there will be crowds. There'll just be limited crowds. So one story this week was that a fifth of the overall capacity of the of the ground would be permitted to come in. So if it were the MCG, 20,000. If it right. were Sydney, 10,000, although they may not get 10,000 for the SCG, that's a good day for them. Um, but we'll, um, we'll, um, we'll, you know, we'll see from ground You could ground say to that ground. about most of the grounds in Australia, actually. If the normal <laughs> yeah. crowd shows up to Brisbane, <laughs> Perth, Sydney, um, it'll be fine. Just ask them all to move down a few seats. <laughs> No, but uh, the the um, the uh, yeah. So I think they're they're building in that expectation that they'll be able to have some crowds at these test matches. So the idea of us all being kind of quarantined in Adelaide, which was the the story there for a couple of weeks, they've moved on from that. But we will go to Adelaide. We'll go to Brisbane, Adelaide, Melbourne, and Sydney for the India test matches. Mostly as expected, Jeff. Last summer, the debate was: Will they play in Perth at the new stadium, or will they mm. play at the Gabba, the sort of dilapidated Gabba? But um, I guess the cricket side of it has won out. The, the Gabba in Gabba. Perth? <laughs> They're going to play at the Gabba. Oh, you mean no. like play which play which test match? Where? No, that's right. The debate last year right. was whether there'd be a test match at the Gabba or a test match yep. in Perth. So. Uh, on the assumption that it has to be Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, if it's only four available, you, do you go with the new stadium in Perth or do you go with, you know, which, which to be fair, has produced two very entertaining test matches so far, no, no, no doubt about that. Or do you go to the Gabba where Australia have won, you know, their last 30 starts mm. and um, they've, they've gone with the latter, which was Tim Payne's preference, I note as well. Yeah, it was an Australian team preference in that... They felt disadvantaged in the last India tour by not starting at Brisbane, but I don't think that was the deciding factor. You know, if it had just been the team pushing for one thing, but the the finances dictated something else, then that wouldn't have mattered. It, it's it's disappointing in that 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 Optus Stadium deck is bloody fantastic, and well, particularly the one for the the last India match was was a really spicy pitch, and it was a really entertaining game. So that is unfortunate that we won't get to see what will still be a really good Indian pace attack bowl on that deck we won't get mm. to see Coley and co bat on on that pitch either the Gabba pitch will have a bit in it as well probably but it hasn't been you know particularly exciting the last decade or so or maybe two um, when you look at most of the the test wickets that have been rolled out up there so I guess from a scheduling point of view it made sense in that Perth got the previous one when Brisbane missed out therefore Brisbane gets this one but uh, from a pure facilities point of view I'd much rather see it at the the stadium in Perth because you know frankly nobody shows up to the cricket at the Gabba anyway and it's uh, it's not a great place to watch it yeah so instead Perth will be where the one day series starts three one dayers one at the new stadium so they'll get their marquee game there followed by Melbourne followed by Sydney and Jeff to the credit of Cricket Australia they're also inviting New Zealand back for White Ball International so that was the um, the, the statement back in March when coronavirus hit that they would get New Zealand back to fix that up and look after them and yeah and, and to their credit they're, they're doing that that would have been an easy series to have cancelled but they're playing three one dayers and a T20 International uh, which uh, which will take place at the back end of January. You'd have to say there's a, a 
fair few question marks over the supposed tour to South Africa that was going to be in March next year at the end of that season. They were supposed to go there for three tests. Um, South Africa's already talking about getting sports teams back into training where they might relax restrictions next week, but uh, they're COVID numbers are spiking. They've had close to 2,000 new cases a day for the last week or so, and they're about 100th in the world for tests per capita, so the numbers are probably much higher than that. That's shooting up at the moment, so whether they'll be in any shape to accept visiting teams in, you know, six or nine months' time is pretty debatable. Yeah, and, and also, if there's no World Test Championship to play for and we don't know anything about that yet due to the aforementioned ICC board meeting being scrapped last week but if it turns out that they're not going to go ahead with the WTC uh, for 2021 and you know I can't really imagine how they will I suppose it's debatable because they're going to get back a lot of the test matches somehow but in, in any case if there is some delay to that then there might be an incentive to push back that South African series anyway given it is such a long summer um, for the Australian team and, and given the the sort of biosecurity, they'd probably have to be in quarantine in South Africa beforehand and maybe even indeed when they got back to Australia. It, it's a it's a big ask and I'm not saying that other countries aren't being asked to do similar at the moment, but yes, I suppose time will tell whether they are willing to make that, that sacrifice and go over there um, when there's less to play for considering that there's no world, if there were to be, I, sh- I should say, no World Test Championship to consider. Kevin Roberts has put the estimate at 80 million that they'll lose even if the India series goes ahead. They reckon they'll lose 50 million on tickets from having reduced crowds, which seems like a very high figure given a lot of the ticket price goes to the venue and then to the state association and CA only takes a clip. You know, there'd, there'd be corporates involved in that and so on. But if they're looking at around about two million in attendance probably per season there's there's usually one point something million for the big bash and mm. you know maybe another four hundred thousand for an india test series plus whatever the white ball series get so say you get a couple of million in are they really making that much per ticket that they'd be losing 50 million bucks it, it yeah. seems like a big number i i guess that's just part of that i'm, I'm not sure how Specific, he was being when itemising that 80 mil figure at that press conference the other day. I think he was just talking in, in sort of round numbers, broad numbers with with that. So looking at what they'll lose from the BBL as well with crowds and, and what they'll... There was other revenue streams he identified in that as well, I think. So how much it'll cost, I th- he, he, he said that the biosecurity side of it is, is quite taxing for the host board as well. So, I mean, I guess the it's less about the 80 mil and... Jeff, more about the the 230 that was cited, what was that, maybe three or four weeks ago, um, which was the justification for uh, putting a lot of the staff from Cricket Australia, 80% of the staff indeed, on leave, um, indefinite leave really, uh, what's become indefinite leave uh, with their salaries. Well, on 20% pay. 20% pay, but, you know, uh, essentially furloughed at 20% of their wage, um, which means that, uh, you know, they've got 150 million more potentially than they thought they had even a few weeks ago. So it's a good thing for cricket but it will sharpen the focus on the decision to uh, to move those staff on when they made that call at the very start of all of this. So, Jeff, we're still seeing cuts on staff, I should say, when Kevin Roberts himself acknowledged that there'll probably be actual redundancies from Cricket Australia once they've got to the bottom of this whole um, you know accounting process. Cricket Queensland cut a third of their staff this week um, citing 
um, their own revenue problem. That follows, of course, in what Cricket Victoria did about, about a month ago too. Um, we're still not really sure about what will happen with the Cricket Australia coaching staff when they um, when they get to July and they're technically speaking, we, we get to the end of that period where um, the staff have been um, laid off, well not laid off, but they've been put on this leave where the the new coaching staff under Justin Langer and Matthew Mott, what that might look like, whether they'll have the same amount of assistant coaches and skills coaches and, you know, support staff across the board. So, yeah, it's it's still a pretty interesting time, even though we've got the schedule out there, and that's very, very good news. Very good news for Cricket Australia that have been able to make that announcement, but still a lot of questions along the way. Much better news for women's cricket in Australia than in England, where there is an international schedule that's been put out in New Zealand playing one day as in T20s from the end of September starting that season quite early that spring window like they did last year uh, and then India for one day as in January to, timed to come in just after the men's team um, Meg Lanning's heading back to the Melbourne Stars so it'll be a a bit of interest in the WBBL from that standpoint as well so at least games are going ahead um, rather than being sidelined to save cash as in England. Yeah, that, that was a good announcement um, from from the Stars, wasn't it? Quite savvy uh, getting Meg Lanning back uh, where she originally played. Trent Woodhill's taking over as coach at the Stars, who's a friend of the final word. Trent will also be retaining his responsibilities as a list manager for the men, but um, coaching the women. So I suppose that's evidence of where they're trying to amalgamate jobs under the Cricket Victoria banner. Just touching on your point about the England women's internationals, the news is slightly brighter on that front at the moment. Uh, There was a, a, a press engagement from Claire Connor last week where she has reopened the door, not reopened, she never closed it, but just sort of reinforced that they're still trying to find a way um, to get South Africa and India out here this summer. And that, having had a couple of conversations with uh, people at the ECB last week, that that doesn't feel completely unrealistic. So a bit of a watch this space here. They're they're trying their best um, within the the restrictions they've got with grounds they can use, if there is a way they can still get those tours on. So, But yes, uh, the Australian um, summer for the women is uh, nice and full as it has been over the last few summers. Um, And and yeah, the the Melbourne Stars, I mean, they've never made a final series, Jeff. We we always talk about it when going through (laughs) the WBBL. It seems remarkable that, you know, the marquee, one of the marquee clubs, I suppose, in, in the big bash for the men have never made it to the final four in the women, even when Lanning was making 500 plus runs a season for them. But yes, getting their their superstar back, that'll, that'll that'll give them a good opportunity. Well, it might help, but it didn't help them before. They've always been the, the real dross of the competition. Even when the Hurricanes have really struggled, at least they've tried. At least they've had some seasons where they've given it a crack and, and been more than the sum of their parts. But that really hasn't happened for the Melbourne Stars. So fingers crossed. It'd be nice to see them get off the floor for once. We had a message that might interest you coming in on the patron page over the week from Rex Banner, Adam, who's launched a petition. We might pop a a link for this in the show notes. He's launched a petition to swap the Queen's birthday for Richie Benno Day. His message said, the Queen's birthday is meaningless for most Australians and it's futile to celebrate someone's birthday six weeks after the actual date. However, it is imperative that Australians still have a public holiday in June. It should celebrate someone who has made a significant contribution to Australian life. Due to Richie Benno's birthday also not aligning with the current holiday schedule, I've decided that Richie Benno Day should be celebrated on the 11th of June, the date of his first test century. What do you think? Well, I've written about this at length in the past, so I feel obliged to, to back in my own argument that it should be Reconciliation Day, really, that the Queen's birthday is a farce. So I like the premise. Um, you know, if you go to the pub and ask 
you know, 100 people, what does the Queen's birthday mean? That you, you get sort of 15 different answers. You get Queen Victoria, Queen Mother, you know, of course, Queen Elizabeth's birthday is in, is in April, not in, not in the first week of June. Um, it's celebrated on different days in different parts of Australia, even for that matter. Um, it, it, um, it, you know, the Queen's birthday over here is just a random weekend in June. They don't even use a, a, a Monday. So, you know, when you think about how important those days, those rare public holidays are on the calendar, you think about Anzac Day specifically, I suppose, and, and the relevance that that's had over the last 100 years and the religious holidays and, and so on. Um, Queen's birthday does stick out. It is an odd one on the calendar. So rebadging it as something more meaningful, um, I, I think is, is definitely worthwhile. And it's, I, I like the idea of acknowledging Richie Benno, but um, but uh, yes, it, it also falls smack bang um, in, in the middle of Reconciliation Week, uh, which I think is the first week of June. I haven't got that close to hand at the moment, but um, there, there's a, probably a, a, a better way to rebadge uh, the Queen's birthday one day uh, um, among a range of other um, things that I think that we should consider at some stage, but you know we're not a republic yet, so it'll probably take some time. But um, to, to the broader point about acknowledging Richie Benno, well, I mean, I, I like the I like the lateral thinking, and I like you know picking the day of his first test century. I mean, um, it, it's as good as any other option. It, put it this way, it's better than the Queen's birthday as it currently stands. I'll give him that. Yeah, if it was one or the other, uh, you, you know which way yes, you'd be going. A, a present for the Queen, whether or not for her birthday, was a squad of 55 England men's cricketers named this week. 55! It's even bigger than that Ashes squad that Australia picked in 2010-11, was it, when they yes. ended up with about 43 on of the, the extended squad? It was like the all-Australian extended, extended squad. Anyone who'd ever rolled an arm over for a state team was in there as a spinner. So... Uh, England have 55 players returning to training for skills work ahead of July tests against the West Indies because they want to be able to have white ball teams playing alongside the test team if that happens. And fascinatingly, despite 55 players getting a go, Alex Hales is not one of them, who's uh, definitely been guilty of being a a fairly prized dickhead at times in his career. Um, But... There's, there's no path back for him even a, a year after being punted from the World Cup squad. Yeah, so this 55-player group it isn't, strictly speaking, uh, 55 players to choose from, although I suppose they could. It's more about giving them match practice. So they need all of these players in the bubble in order to be able to play um, you know, scratch matches before the international start. So it does stand to reason why it's a big group and they're, they're off training at their county grounds as of uh, this week. But yeah, the, the headline was Alex Hales, wasn't it? Because we heard from Chris Wokes... Uh, the week before it was announced saying that, you know, from a playing group perspective, they were pretty relaxed about seeing Alex return to England colours, having um, been punted before the World Cup last year for failing a, a drugs test. And, you know, that all happened quite abruptly and it was a massive story um, before the World Cup. And obviously that sits sits heavy with Owen Morgan, the England captain, who was, uh, you know, he, 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 he was the man talking to this after he didn't get picked, Hales that is, and fairly forthright saying that as from his perspective um, it wasn't that long ago it was only 13 months ago since or whatever it was since he breached the trust of the team and it nearly derailed the tournament according to Morgan and as a result uh, you know he, he doesn't feel as though uh, enough time has passed for that to happen now Hales is 31 you know he's got 600s for England and and uh, you know made it so many runs at domestic level including in the big bash as well at various different t20 comps they're leading into the the, t- the heavy t20 cycle with at least one possibly two world cups in the next two years where hale still remains at the peak of his powers and i don't know i mean failing a drug test he, he was it, i think it was 
reasonable um, for him to have been um, kicked out of the squad when it happened for, for a range of reasons in terms of what, the way they were gelling and the importance of that competition for England. But, I mean, this kind of feels like a life ban, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, he might get back, sure, but surely uh, if he was going to be reintroduced to the national setup, this was the time to do it. And the fact that they haven't has just made it a bigger story. It'll continue to, to percolate and continue to move on. Maybe he'll have to wait until Owen Morgan retires from international cricket. But is that fair? Is it reasonable um, that his career should have to hinge on on the longevity of another's? It, it does feel um, like, you know, this was the time to get on with it with Hales. But also how does a captain have that much clout? You know, isn't a captain's job to take the team that they're given when they lead them out onto the field and produce the best result on the day. How does a captain get to decide what someone else's career is going to look like? You know, surely it's a decision that has to be taken more broadly than whether or not the captain's going to crack the shits about it. Yeah, age-old debate, isn't it? Should captains get to be involved in picking their own team? Uh, some argue forcefully that they should, others don't want a bar of it. Uh, you know, Michael Clark went from one extreme to the other in his time as Australian captain, for example. Morgan's got an enormous amount of authority because he won them a World Cup. Simple as that. And, um, you know, an elder statesman, remember, he debuted for England all the way back in 2009. He played international cricket back in 2005, I think it was, for Ireland. So he's been around such a long time and he's still very much a, an integral figure as a, as a player and, and considered to be a genius captain, really, uh, and leader and loved by his team. Um, and he does a lot, a lot of good, Owen Morgan. He's been a great captain. Uh, for England, and I suppose with that comes with the sort of authority that he that he can influence decisions like this. And no one said expressly that Morgan made the call. I should add, it's more that people are adding two and two together based on his comments last week. But he's the public face of the call. He's the he one is. coming yeah. out saying there has not been enough time passed. The breach of trust was too great. The trust has not been regained. You know, that's that's not him saying that some people feel that or that you know True. there is an attitude within the organisation that he's he's putting it down as as his point of view. And I wonder when when a captain is so respected that they're given, or when any person in any role is given that much authority, whether it gives them the freedom to make bad decisions as well as good ones. You know, they're they're allowed to make decisions that they should be pulled up on. Other interesting uh, bits of selection in the 55. Richard Gleeson's in there, which just makes my heart warm. Uh, he played, of course, Jeff. His debut for Northants was a game that you I and I called together well. on my birthday. Uh, in, uh, in On his birthday. On his birthday. Richard Gleeson's debuted on his birthday. <laughs> 2015, that tour game we've talked about a lot over the years on the final word, where Stephen Crook went on to make 100. But Gleeson was out there with him when he brought up the 100, batting in a pair of black trainers. He didn't have his name on the back. He'd been brought in from the minor county of Cumbria and, um, and and was, you know, brought in the night before, I think, so went the story. So Had little was known about him. captain never seen him bowl. The captain's like, yeah. what do you bowl, mate? What do you bowl, champ? <laughs> and, and so much so that the scorecards that we were given from North Hans at the start of the day to work off uh, had his name misspelt as Glesson. So we were, we were calling him as Richard Glesson throughout the, the first day of that game. But Daniel Norcross, um, who was with us that day calling as well, said it's one of his favourite days ever at the cricket. And I share that. It was a beautiful day, wonderful way to spend my birthday. And um, Gleeson has at age 32, having, you know, come late to the professional game, now made it into this England squad. So I suppose it's a, it's a possibility that he, he'll get himself an England berth by the time that he's done. He bowls fast. He bowls over 90 mile an hour in the old money. So I understand why they've, they've, they've shown an interest in him. Unfortunately, no room for uh, Jamie Porter, which 
I don't know, I can't really work out what's going on there. He's done everything right for Essex. He's taken, I think it's 258 wickets in the last four years. Um, they've won two championships with him leading the attack. They're going to have to replace James Anderson at some point, sooner rather than later. I mean, Anderson's fit as a fiddle, but he's not going to play when he's 42 or something. And, and Porter seems the overwhelmingly obvious guy to be blooding at this stage to, to have someone ready to, to play that role in English conditions later on. Well, but, but he's not in the 55 either. Anderson's not going to play the whole summer. They've, if things go ahead as it is, they've got three West Indies tests in July uh, and then three Pakistan tests in August. So yeah. there's no way Anderson's going to get through six tests back to back. He might he might not get through two. But well, six yeah, tests the, back, yeah, six six tests in seven weeks. You're right. I mean, it's, it's a heavy workload. That's why they'll take a big, they'll take a massive group of bowlers in to give them the freedom to to, to rotate. And England have done that well over the last three or four years. One thing they have done well is is rotate their, their quicks. Uh, and they've got a few one-dayers in there against Ireland on the, what will probably be the 1st, the 3rd and the 5th of August. And then increasingly, Jeff, it does feel as though Australia will go over there in September to finish the English summer. Um, it'll all be behind closed doors. It'll all be um, in this uh, biosecure environment. We heard Steve Elworthy, um, who's been on the final word in the past, uh, who mm. runs ECB events now, having finished up at the World Cup, obviously, when it finished up last year. He's, um, yeah, fairly bullish about what they'll be able to achieve this summer which is great and and even county cricket so the first of august has been identified as when county cricket can start it'll be uh, in three conferences so three groups of six uh, they'll play it into October for the first time, which Richie Benno will like, because Benno used to always say that October was a, a perfectly acceptable month for cricket in England. He couldn't understand why they never played in October. Well, they will this year to finish off the county championship. It'll include a final, like the Sheffield Shield final. So that's a bit of an innovation they're trying out in this weird abridged uh, season. And they're going to also squeeze in four weeks of T20 blast. So <laughs> again, we keep saying it, none of this is perfect, but... Good on them for having a crack, I think. I mean, my, my, I tip my lid to uh, those who have found a way to, to get as much cricket into this season as possible, given that, I mean, we're still ostensibly in lockdown here, and, and yet they're, they're able to find a way through. It's, 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 it's admirable. If they want to get crowds to the game, they should just play them in Durham because everyone's allowed to go to Durham whenever they want. And, uh, well, there's, there's no danger at all up there. Well, you, Jeff, you know my you know my part of London well. Uh, you know my part of London very well. Um, if they if they played the game in the parks near here, they wouldn't struggle to get a crowd either. They've been absolutely chockers over the last three, three or four weeks as people increasingly um, chose to disregard the, the the provisions of lockdown. But anyway, that's a mm. different discussion altogether. Well, if you need to see a doctor who plays cricket and you live in, say, the 1920s or, or the 1880s, you can. We were talking about cricket playing doctors on the show a few weeks ago and noting that we, we couldn't really think of many. So Patrick Rogers, one of our listeners, went away and did all of the digging, all the research for us. Here we go. This is, these are just Australians, by the way. Roland Pope, Roy Park and Otto Nothling each played one test match and they were all doctors. Is there a link? I don't know. Uh, Roland Pope made three runs in his one test. Roy Park is alleged the, the guy who made a, a first ball duck. He's the one whose wife dropped her knitting when he came out to bat and thus she missed his whole test career. And Otto Nothling played one test and then got dropped for Bradman to come back and thus never got another kick. Well, I suppose Bradman was a famous teetotaler and his name is Otto and he likes to get blatto. That might be why he's, uh, he found himself out of the side. Uh, but also Tup Scott, who we've mentioned before, who captained in the 1880s at one point, uh, was a doctor. Uh, John Barrett, who carried his bat in a test match. Uh, a couple of others. But there are some great first-class players as well who were doctors. My favourite being Owen Rock. 
they're, they're just what a name um, who, who got through the First World War with a, an injured leg and then somehow became a great batsman, played six first-class games for New South Wales, averaged 95 and then retired <laughs> in order to be a doctor. <laughs> So he's like, yeah, look, this caper's fine. He made two hundreds, a double hundred, and a couple of fifties in his six first class games, and then said, "Nah, not for wow. me, fellas. Enjoy the cricket." Um, and, wow. and hung so up that, the boots. Oh, that's a great story. I'm sure someone has written that story. The that he could have gone on to done anything. There's there's not a lot on him. There there, there are a couple of little bits, but this, that was in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, there was also a doctor named Claude Tozer who also uh, served in the First World War came back and was about to, had played a few games for New South Wales and was about to play another one and then got murdered by his married lover whose name was Dorothy Mort, which of course means Dorothy Death in French. So you, you think that should have been a warning, but he got shot in a, an argument about ending the affair and thus that ended his first class career. Uh, and then more recently there was Daniel Harris who played for South Australia. So those are some mm. cricketing doctors for you that Patrick Rogers dug up. That is great work, Patrick. I mean, I think that started... How did that begin? We were, I, I have no I idea know. How, we, how we got there, but <laughs> I'm glad we got the full story. And I, I tell you, oh, Patrick, I'm going to go away and learn some more about Owen Rock. Um, if, if it's been 100 years since he played first-class cricket, it might be the right time, so go and find out some more. I might, I might do some digging during the week. Let's hear the interstitial tunes, and then we'll finish off the show with a spot of a nerd pledge. This is Felix White and you are listening to The Final Word Pod with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon to hit it out the nunnery. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and it is, of course, as we've already foreshadowed time for Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page who support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents and that number relates to a cricketing number that is the same as that number but maybe with a decimal point in a different place but we don't know what the number means but we have to work out what the number is with no help from nobody with no clues out on the cold steps where we are lucky to get a saucer of milk a day and we are ready to rip into it once again Adam Collins beautifully set up Jeff and beautifully set up I'm looking forward to this Uh, before we get into some new numbers let's review Visit some old ones where we perhaps got it wrong and had some feedback from our loyal patrons. Cal McLeod, I apologise to Cal. I did have this clue via WhatsApp <laughs> before uh, we, we, we came to his 770, but I neglected to remember when we addressed it last week. So 770 was his number and we had a 77 and a 7 for 70 and, and so on, uh, which was fine. And he enjoyed, and he enjoyed us telling the story of those uh, various bits and pieces. I think one of them involved knocking the gates down at the Oval back in 1938. Anyway, um, but it was 77. We were kind of right, Jeff. In, in in reducing it that way. Um, his pledge was in reference to the number 77, which is the highest number of wickets shared between a bowler and a fieldsman, uh, that pair being Murali and Mahala, which are his favourite cricketers of the century, depending on which day you catch him when he says. So thanks to Cal, and that resolves 770, Mahala and Murali together again. Claire Daniel put in 502, which was not 50.2 being Viv Richards' batting average, but it related to an Essex Tour match that, Adam, you got very excited about when I said the words Essex Tour match. It's when Alistair Cook uh, arrived. So this is before the Oval Test match of 2005. Australia have lost at Trent Bridge and they're they're coming to the Oval and they've got the chance to to win that final test and and, and retain the Ashes. And and they rock up at Essex, who go on and make pile on 502 against them, including a young Alistair Cook. 
214 Cook made well before his international debut. Ravi Bapara made 135. A lot of Ravi fans who listened to the final word. Uh, I note that Brad Hodge made 166. How did they not pick Brad Hodge for that final test match? He was in red-hot form and they kept Michael Clark instead. Imagine that series with Mike Hussey and Brad Hodge in the middle order instead yeah, know, right? of, say, Damian Martin and Michael Clark. Anyway... Oof. Wasn't to be, but yes, 5.02, Claire Daniel, thank you. The Essex Tour match of 2005, a game that gets talked about a lot down at Chelmsford. In fact, there's still newspaper clippings on the wall of in the press box there, isn't there, of, um, of the Cook 214. And, of course, that's followed by um, his call-up uh, to play Test cricket uh, against India, which would have been later that year, wasn't it? He made his debut in that India series of 0506, and then he made a century at the first time of asking at Nagpur, wasn't it? So a big year for Alistair Cook. Alex Crampton had been feeding us clues about Edgebast and so I was trawling old Warwickshire scores but in fact his 330 relates to the number of wickets taken by Alan Donald who had a particularly unpleasant day at Edgebaston. And also of course Alan Donald played for Warwickshire for many many years so there's a nice tie in there he took 330 test wickets and had a yes a, a starring role in the 99 semi-final which Alex mentioned. Nick Beavers 441 was the 4 for 41 that James Pattinson took. Was it in the Shield final? Yeah, so he, he wrote to us and said that he was going to make it 3 for 30, which was Pato's figures in the first innings of the Shield final last year, which is one of the most exciting spells he's ever seen. But he wanted to give us an extra buck, so he made it 4 for 41. <laughs> What Paddy picked Nick. up in the uh, in the second dig, and of course, that for me, I remember that as the some of the best wicket-taking celebrations I've ever seen. So um, I hope he's back in the Test side soon and and uh, running amok. Big Paddo, former guest of the final word, Dink Wingleman. I, I said this would be uh, Herath's figures with a hat trick of four for thirty-five. Instead, it was another set of figures of four for thirty-five with a hat trick. Matthew Hoggard took a hat trick against the West Indies. So <laughs> close, Dink. So close. Mark Litson's two thirty-eight was, he says, Damian Martin's highest first-class score. Two thirty-eight off about ten balls, all blocked fours, and frankly X-rated cover drives the way only he could at Scarborough. So uh, we love a bit of first-class action here, particularly X-rated cover drives. Some more first-class action from Chris Armwin. He said six one eight, so sixty-one point eight wasn't. Adam Voges batting average at Test Cricket like we thought it was. It's Glenn Chappell, 6 for 18 in the NatWest Trophy Final of 1996. He's a very unlucky man, Chappell. He, he played one ODI in 2006 against Ireland but never got a, another opportunity. He finished his career at age 41 with 985 scalps. He got so close to, to four figures but he, um, he, he did lead Lancashire to their first championship. The drought-breaking championship win of 2011, which was the first time they'd won the comp solo. They'd won it joint, I think, once before, but since 1934. So a long and illustrious first-class career. So that, that's where Chris Unwin landed was 618. I'm really hoping that our listeners can hear a lot of Winnie gurgling in the background because she's coming through my headphones <laughs> loud and clear. She's really giving it a belt. Uh, it sounds like she's having a ball. Yeah, She may not come through the microphone. I can hear her um, in my headphones as well, but oh well, she's going well. She's, she's now rolling onto her side. She can, um, she can copy the raspberries that I do at her, which is pretty cute. And she's now wearing big girl clothes for the summer as well. She's got a singlet on right today. It's pretty cute. <laughs> Australian tradition. Yep. I had no idea what you were talking about last week when you started talking about half man half biscuit i was like what like is he having can you smell toast burning at the moment like is something going wrong in there because um i, yeah, I didn't know what you're on about but we've had like, a ton of people writing in about whatever this is so half man half biscuit wrote um the song uh, about fred titmus which this is I this is a band is it they are a band 
Uh, and uh, and I and I mentioned this when we were discussing Fred Titmus because I got sent to yep. me uh, on Twitter um, the, the 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 Fred Titmus song which they wrote um, and we got a number of replies Simon Eastwood one of them Lazy Fred nineteen seventy one uh, said to me Christ I was about to fall asleep with the phone on my chest then you mentioned half man half biscuit you couldn't make it up uh, so I, I dug a little bit deeper and uh, David Lloyd Bumble evidently references them quite a bit on television he likes their lyrics and likes to confuse people when he brings them up they had a big hit uh, their biggest hit was um uh, back in the dhss which was a play on back in the ussr I, I learnt as well and received a dm from one of our patrons chris arkel who said it put a big smile on his face when we mentioned them evidently they've got a lot of sports references in their songs and three other cricketers are mentioned uh, including Van Boom Holder, Headley Verity and his favourite Rodney Ontong and also the BBC TV scorer Wendy Wimbush who of course has been was the, the treasurer of the Cricket Writers Club for about a million years uh, she's, she's also um, mentioned uh, by them in a song so he's going to he, he can't wait uh, Chris says for gigs to start again and he can go along and watch them, them play and I, I will be there with you I, I promise you that when um, Half Man and Half Biscuit are back on tour and, and we're let out of lockdown that I'll, I'll join you and I'll, I'll enjoy that night I'm sure this is one of those really weird English things that you've adopted, like, you know, drinking flat ales or something. This is, I, I cannot, I don't know what it's about, but apparently people love it. That's fine. Look, we're up to the new numbers. Um, and if you're wondering where your number is, the numbers we're doing today end at uh, March 27. So if you're after March 27, we haven't got to your number yet. And we are sorry for that, but we are, we're doing our best. It's just, it just takes about 43 minutes to talk about each one because there are so many exciting cricketing facts. Now, Bernard Sayer has come through, a big supporter of the show, and uh, we're very pleased to have him pop up in the list with 180. Now, this is added to a, an additional pledge that he already had, but apparently the 180 is the important bit. Now, immediately when I see 180, I think Raul Dravid in 2001 in the Laxman and Dravid partnership. But Bernard says that uh, this was his first cricket hero. And we've met Bernard in Adelaide, and he I don't I think his vintage is, is a bit early to have Raul Dravid as his first cricketing hero, maybe one of his later ones. So I was trying to figure this out, and, and I don't think he goes back far enough to have seen Ted Dexter in the ashes at Edgebaston in 1961. But there aren't a lot of 180s in the earlier era. There are lots of modern 180s, but the only one that vaguely fits is John Fulton Reed, the Kiwi batsman who has probably the best conversion rate ever in cricket. In, in test cricket, 600s, two half centuries. So the eight times he passed 50, six of them he went on to make hundreds, which nobody imagine. does. Usually, usually it's less a, than half. Well, you've got a, you've got a spreadsheet that documents I'm going to do a stat man on this, on exactly right, this topic, say, so I'm very were, interested you, in it. You were positively aroused when Eunice Khan tipped over the oh. more centuries and half centuries column. And I retired. Mean, as, when he, when as, he, he got up to 3300s and 32 halves and then said, I'm good, I'm done. Oh, what a moment. As a lot of statisticians, including uh, Andy Saltzman, say, we should eliminate the the distinction between um, the two. In other words, we should talk about scores above 50 rather than talking yes. about half centuries. But anyway, be that as, while we have that category, you'll keep monitoring it. Yes, yes, I will. So it, it's either that, uh, probably probably Bernard's too early for it to be Richie Richardson's cap number, but it might be Jeff Lawson, 180 test wickets. That's, oh, yeah? So that, that's where I'm going. It's either John Reid or it's Jeff Lawson, depending you know which, which way Bernard wants to swing. Very nice. I'm happy to go with Jeff Lawson on that. I, I stumbled upon uh, an old um, YouTube clip, which I might send to you, Jeff. You'll probably quite enjoy it, of the Today Show, um, the morning <laughs> that Australia beat um, England at Headingley in 1989. A very important 
sort of turning point for the Australian yep. team, winning that first test match of that series. And um, and Jeff Lawson, along with Alderman and Hughes, were all in the wickets on the final day. Had a beautiful action, didn't he, um, Henry? He, um, his approach to the crease is, yeah, probably one of the, the first bowling actions I used to try and mimic in the backyard as a little kid. Now, our next on the list, Nicky Young with 307. I know that you know 307 in your sleep. You probably dream of 307. I you do. dream of seeing it replaced with your name and whatever the score is <laughs> that you made at the MCG. Yeah, so Bob Cowper at 1966, uh, Ashes, of course, uh, uh, at the MCG. It, it's kind of peak 1960s, though, looking back at it and thinking about it a little bit more. So they're one all heading into the final Test match. England and Australia. Australia, of course, retained um, the urn in 64, having won it in 61 and, and so on, and retained it in 62, 63. So, I mean, the it's Australia's to lose. But nevertheless, I mean, it's kind of crazy that a deciding test match of the series and both teams bat for fucking ages in the first innings, which means that there's only 17 overs in the third innings of the test match. And they talk about, you know, your sleepy draws in the 1960s. This was absolutely that. But yes, a piece of history. Bob Cowper making 307 and it remains on the honours board in the MCC as the highest score by an Australian in a test match on the G. Yes, we saw Alistair Cook replace Viv Richards um, to the chagrin of many a couple of years ago, but nobody has replaced Bob Cowper ever since that 307. Thank you, Nikki Young. Marianne Webb has come through with $3.82. Now, $3.82, often it's not a cap number, but in this case, I think it's very likely to be. Scott Muller's cap number was $3.82. And, you know, can't bowl, can't throw. It sometimes slips my mind that there will be people a lot younger than us who don't actually know some of the references. So Scott Muller played a couple of games for Australia and was famously the the player who, while he was um, playing in a test in Hobart, I think, uh, Shane Warne was picked up on the stump microphone saying those words, can't bowl, can't throw, when an errant throw came in. And and then credit for that was subsequently claimed by a Channel 9 cameraman who said it wasn't Warney at all. Um, And the debate rages to this day as to who it was, second only to the the, the Steve (laughs) Waugh controversy is what can come up more boringly more often every year. Nick Toovey, patron of the show, sent me a, a fantastic compilation of Joe the Cameraman um, stuff that came up about, I don't know how this ended up in his on his radar, but um, there was a, a follow-up done on A Current Affair or one of those programs a year later or something like that because Joe the Cameraman ended up being a bit of a celebrity for a while. He did some advertising. He um, ended up featured at the Logies that year. Um, and, I think he uh, still works for them. He got yeah, interviewed he does, last year on, on cable TV. They oh, interviewed totally. him after at Stumps. Oh, no, no, he's, he's, he's around. He's there and, there and thereabouts. <laughs> um, don't worry about that. But, yeah, Scott Muller, that was the famous Gilchrist Langer partnership. It's that test match mm. in Hobart in, against Pakistan in, in 99-2000. So that was his second and last test match. He did bowl quite well in Brisbane in the first test of that series too. He was a fraction unlucky, but yes, always known for the the shame worn slash Joe the cameraman comment. But there are a couple of 382s that are innings scores as well from innings featuring great contributions. The incredible 100 that A.B. de Villiers made in Port Elizabeth in the Sandpaper Series in 2018 Mm. when he turned that match around. He took South Africa to 382 and and a big lead when they were well behind. And then there was the 382 that Yunus Khan drove Pakistan to when they chased it. One of the biggest fourth innings chases ever in Kandy in Sri Lanka probably about five years ago, 2015 yep. maybe, and he made 171 not out in the last innings, just one of his absolute finest hours for a... He's like such an underappreciated player. For a guy who made 33 test tons, 
no one talks about Yunus Khan. He's like Saeed Anwar in that way. A couple of Pakistan players who just never get the recognition for, for being at the elite tier that they actually were. I called the AB de Villiers 100 for SEN Radio back to Australia and was on mic when he when he brought up the century and it was, uh, yes, one of the, the joys of my commentary. I think we both were. Time. I remember yeah, watching you well, through yeah. the window in the next in the next booth. That's I was right. in the ABC box and you were next door and we were both absolutely ripped we, up. We should get the audio for those two. That'd be quite nice to listen to them back. So I know I gave it fairly big because it yeah, truly was an, an astonishing innings. Remember the the uh, that session he had to bat with Hashim Amla with the ball reversing, funny that, hooping around um, by the Australian quicks um, the previous afternoon. So anyway, that, that, that was a, a great day at the cricket. Um, and I just would note that Ollie Pope um, batted for 382 minutes um, in his maiden 100 uh, against South Africa at Port Elizabeth, same ground. Um, earlier this year and I just wanted to put that in to say that that happened this year can you believe that series between England and South Africa oh, happened God. in 2020 I mean it feels like it happened Oof. years ago given all that's happened all, all that's gone on around the world since but yes uh, that was his first hundred of what I'm sure will be many a beautiful innings down at Port Elizabeth the ground Jeff I hope we get back to sooner rather than later I absolutely love that place that's um, that's that's as disturbing as when someone tells you something like, you know, this movie was made 30 years ago or something and, and you feel <laughs> like time has slipped away. This is the the opposite of that. You go, how is that this year? Yeah, how is that yeah. this year? I just realised that in six years' time, Ferris Bueller's Day Off will be 40 years old. Jesus. There you go. That, that's, my, that's my landmark. <laughs> um, from 382, thank you, Marianne Webb, to 385. This is a double threat. Joey McGann and Cameron Allen. And I loved seeing Joey McGann in the list because it just made me think of David McGann's world starring Sean McAuliffe, the, the Earth Moon <laughs> Toast Bridge. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great Sean McAuliffe, William McGuinness uh, spot from that era as well which I mm. I might post when we have the William interview up in a, in a couple of weeks but um, <laughs> at the, both just at the peak of their comedic powers I suppose you would say uh, when, when in that era of McAuliffe loved him this is David McGann's world uh, so Joey McGann and Cameron Allen have come in with 385 so it's, it's going to be a different thing for each of them I'm thinking that Joey I reckon Joey's a, a big Steve Smith fan and when Steve Smith made his second Test 100, the point where he really announced himself as, as the talent that was going to stay, was in Perth in 2013 when he... A very different 100 to most of his other ones because it, it wasn't controlled and grinding. He hooked all day. They bounced him. They tried to bounce him out in Perth thinking that he was uh, susceptible to the short ball and he just kept hooking like way in front of square. He was hooking through mid-wicket, which is when you know that a player's really on top of, of the pull shot. Mm, um, mm. And he, he was swiveling on his back heel and just creaming to the boundary again and again. It was one of the most exhilarating innings um, I've, well, certainly from him but, but one of the best that I've watched. So that's what I'm looking at where Smith carried Australia to 385 from I reckon they were 5 for 111 is sort of what's stirring in my memory. They were something like that. It was Smith and Haddon who came together and, and turned that disadvantage into a, an absolute um, position of supremacy. Yeah, early wickets from from Anderson, and then yeah, you're right. It was it was Smith and Haddon, and and I've interviewed Smith about that innings uh, a couple of years ago, maybe a few years ago now, and, and he identifies it as the turning point for him. So he made the hundred in England at the, at the Oval. Oval, which you were at, but one thirty eight not. It was the it was the hundred he made at Perth when he in tougher conditions, quick conditions against a 
an attack who had their tail up in a must-win game for England. You know, it was sort of crucial they bowled Australia out, batting with Haddon and then, I guess, the lower order thereafter, and that he just pummeled them. And that was the innings as well, actually, I think I'm right in saying. In fact, I know it is. It's the innings where he decided shuffling over. He made a decision in that innings to change the way that he batted. Just just an audible call, <laughs> if you like, in, in um, NFL speak, to start... Um, to start shuffling that way, and that was it. We know now that that movement's got bigger and bigger and bigger. But before that, evidently, he was relatively not maybe not still in the crease, but he didn't make that that movement of the back foot across towards the off stump. Uh, and then against England that day, he started doing it, and the rest is history. Um, I had um, another momentous innings. Uh, Three eighty five uh, was for a very, very, very long time the highest mm. score in first class cricket by a left hander. So Bert Sutcliffe, the great New Zealander, um, made 385 for Otago against Canterbury in the summer of 1952-53. And it remained the, the highest score by a Southpaw until 1994, when Brian Lara, of course, went beyond 385 and pushed on to 501. So he absolutely smashed it, like Usain Bolt in the 2008 Olympics and some. But uh, no, the, 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 uh, the record for a left-hander um, was, was posted then in 52-53 by Bert Sutcliffe. So I doubt that's it. But, hey, it's, it's a good one to have in the can. Let's just say it is. Cameron Allen loves Bert Sutcliffe and Joey McGann loved that innings in Perth from Stephen Smith. That's 385. Thank you to you too. And another double act for the last number today from Craig McGowan as opposed to McGann, the McGowans and the McGanns, and Tom, no last name, anonymous. Ooh, spooky. Tom and Craig have gone for 205, which could be Ted Dexter again. Now, we had the 180 that was his second highest test score a couple of numbers ago. His highest score in Karachi was 205. Ted Dexter, the the dashing batsman of the 60s for England, who, who was most noted for smashing pace. There was a famous innings he played against Wes Hall and Charlie Griffith when he took them on. Didn't make 100 but got close to it and um, absolutely flayed them away at a time when you were saying that in the 60s cricket was pretty dreary for um, a, a lot of the time. But his highest score in Karachi against spin, 205. There's a couple of other 205s. AB, of course, his high score was 205, but so was Neil Harvey's. That, and you mean Alan Border AB, not AB de Villiers AB. We've right, got two ABs right. now. Two We've ABs. really got to distinguish. Uh, um, Neil Harvey's high score in Test cricket was also 205. And why that's interesting, it was in Australia's first innings, uh, hmm. a game at Melbourne in uh, in the summer of 1952-53 as well. So, again, a link back to um, Bert Sutcliffe from the previous answer. Yeah. I don't remember that summer. You got your first real six string down at the five and dime. <laughs> you played it till your fingers bled. It was the summer of 1952. 52, 53. 53. Uh, Australia make 520 and Harvey makes 205 of those. And mm. then they lose. They lose the test. I think off the top of my head, it's the highest first inning score that a team has lost with. Um, so they go on, they make 520. South Africa make 435. No one makes 100 in that. It's very consistent innings from South Africa, 435 over the space of a day and a half. Then Australia are all mm. out for 209 in their second dig, which means that South Africa was set 295 to, to win the test match. And they did precisely that in 95.5 overs. They got there with six wickets to spare. So they won by six wickets, I should say. So on the fifth day. So yeah, it's a a moment of history in the sense that, you know, a team losing after making 520 and also Neil Harvey's high score, 205. And also in the same summer as Sutcliffe's 385. That hits a lot of nerd pledge hotspots, Jeff. 
Standing on their mama's porch, they told you that you'd never lose after making 520 batting first. Well, that links back to our cricketing doctor from earlier, Harry Owen Rock, who, uh, when he was playing for New South Wales in one of his few games, New South Wales made 614 and lost. <laughs> so they'll go you one better. You should keep your 520. 614 in the first innings and lost by seven wickets. So it, it can happen. My actual nomination for 205, though, because I reckon Craig McGowan, the name has a touch of Kiwi to it, would be BJ Watling. He made 205 when he batted for the longest innings by a wicketkeeper last year when England were touring in Mount Mong. Ganui, he batted for oh, 600 minutes or something like that when he made that double century and just absolutely <laughs> made everybody cry. So uh, that's that's my tip. I reckon Craig is uh, a BJ Watling fan and uh, Tom is probably going for a classic in Allen Border in, in terms of the highest score. So those are our Nerd Pledge numbers for this week. If you're still listening somehow at the end of that incredibly long segment and you want to play Nerd Pledge, you go to patron.com slash the final word. You spell patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And then when you get there, you sign up, you choose your number of whatever the number is that you want to pose as a question to us. We will see it. We'll write it down. And later on, if you want to edit your number to something else, you can do that as well if you're already signed up you can set us another challenge and we'll add it to the list and try to keep going through them thanks to bernard nikki marianne joey craig and tom for being our new numbers you know what i, I love jeff the way that nerd pledge has evolved and cameron you know? don't leave yeah. out cameron poor sorry, old cameron. cameron sorry cameron. god uh, cameron shows up every day <laughs> he, he's always there he's on time who brings the barbecue shapes cameron no one ever thanks him for it no one offers to chip in Bring the chicken Bloody crimpy. unappreciated, Cameron. Bring the chicken crimpy. Uh, uh, thank you to you all. I, I love the way that it's evolved uh, during lockdown. We've had a, you know, a bit more space to work with and we've indulged in that. But, uh, yeah, th- that we've played a few more shots with the history lesson each week and it's been a lot of fun on the DMs as well. So that's the thing about uh, the Patreon account that Jeff and I are in the inbox most days fielding different comments and questions and discussion about the numbers and so on. So if you want to get involved, this is a great time to do it. We're also looking at doing another a patron-only event. I say patron-only, I mean like an event we'll put on the patron page. I'm working on this, but we've learnt uh, during the week, Jeff, that Paulie Shaw is available to us in the sense that he is on the Cameo website. Now, um, yes, costs a bit of money. It'll be an investment, but I wonder whether there is an appetite on the patron page for us altogether one night to watch Biodome. I reckon there might be. I'll work on that. I'll come back to it next week. I'll see what I can, what I can rustle together. But that cameo page, that's um, in fact, there, there might be a whole segment in cricketers on cameo. And if you don't know what that is, mm. perhaps we'll go into it in greater depth. But basically, you can pay for a celebrity to give you a shout out, and a, a number of cricketers have, have taken it upon themselves to put a price on their head, and, and, you, you, and some reasonably amusing messages follow. So, but yes, well, if uh, we can't, if we can't get Paulie Shaw for Biodome, we could probably get William McGuinness for um, who starred in You and Your Stupid Mate, which was um, a, a similarly panned comedy made in Australia. It had Angus Sampson in it. Um, it grossed six hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars at cinemas and it has a three out of ten rating on imdb um it's it's one of the least critically acclaimed films of all time which uh, which william was in so maybe we can maybe we can get i think he was playing a um uh a, a whatchamacallit like a a work for the doll instructor or supervisor or whatever you call it um 
could be the start of so something. This, this could he be, was this the could villain be... of, of the piece, and and right. Dee Bliss was in it from from Neighbours. Um, oh, she right. was playing playing a soapy star who who Angus Sampson was trying to stop from being axed off TV. So it's a, a great piece of Australiana. There could be something in this final word of film night. Oh, I might I might do a bit of work during the week because of course we you know we could I can easily imagine a scenario where. Our old mate Reese Baby Muldoon joins us for Danny Deck Chair as well. I mean, that that, that could be done. That could be done. We'll All see. right, I think, I think we've had enough on the show today. We've managed we to fill it as ever, <laughs> despite not knowing how. Uh, this has been the final word. Thank you to Bad Producer, the production company that gets us out each and every week. DC, Jay and Astrid working away behind the scenes there. Thank you to Future Talent. Please make sure to check out their sports card offerings at futuretalent.com.au. And thank you especially to everyone who has signed up on the Patreon page. You make this show possible it literally would not happen without you so it's still going because of your support so if you want to jump on patreon.com slash the final word and uh, i think that's all we have to say adam yes and thanks to cbus super as well cbussuper.com.au for being with us now for an entire year jeff can you believe it cbus super what great supporters of the final word they've been one of my longer and more successful relationships so <laughs> i really appreciate the way they listen and the way we just we just seem to get each other you know they just get me this has been the final word jeff lemon adam collins we'll see you next week Ta-da. i had to go about it right.